Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I want to remind you that as we approach our five-year anniversary and 200 episodes, we now have a YouTube channel. So you can both hear and watch us there. Please make sure you go there and subscribe or wherever podcasts are found. Also, can you tell a friend about an honorable profession? We are profiling some of the best emerging American leaders, and we want to make sure that we spread the word. So we continue to highlight these folks and make sure that you know and have hope in American democracy. Today, I'm talking to Virginia delegate Irene Shin. We're going to get a perspective on the split politics of Virginia, the challenges of serving in a part-time legislature, and her advocacy for a more inclusive democracy in her second full-time job as executive director of the Virginia Civic Engagement Table, a nonprofit that organizes communities to increase civic education and engagement across the Commonwealth. Previously, Irene worked for Supervisor John Faust, now Vice President Kamala Harris, and spent many years doing political organizing with nonprofits to recruit and support Black, Indigenous, people of color, and women to run for office. As a delegate, Irene has sought protections from utility disconnections for vulnerable residents, greater support for Virginians with intellectual disabilities, and ending the inhumane animal testing and breeding practices in her state. Irene, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here with you. So let's talk on how things are going in Virginia. I think many of us thought Virginia was going to be a solidly blue state for now into the foreseeable future, but that hasn't been the case. What's it been like to try to legislate in a divided state? Yeah, that's a really important question, Ryan. And it gets kind of to the heart of what I like to dispel from people who think that Virginia is a blue state. I think in presidential years, we have been reliably blue since 2008 with President Obama being elected. But since then, I would say we've had a mixed bag of partisan leadership in the governor's mansion, as well as in the legislative chambers. And so certainly in 2021, we didn't see it coming, but maybe that was our own hubris in that we elected a Republican governor and lost the majority in the House of Delegates. And so we have the Senate, which is still controlled by the Democratic Party, and then the House that I serve in that is controlled by the Republican Party. And it has been a really wild ride, especially because it's my first term. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what to expect. And I came in and somehow, I think I have both been pleasantly surprised, but also found it really demoralizing to serve an office in a split legislature. I say it's been like surprising and maybe it's a good thing because I think about how slow government is to respond to the needs of the people. And then I think about how slow and frustrating it is. And then when like I'm down there in Richmond and I see some of the batshit stuff, right, that's being introduced. And you're like, what is happening? And thank God things move slow because that stuff isn't going anywhere, right? I mean, we saw 
legislation that was introduced to like legalize ivermectin as a treatment for COVID-19 in 2021. And you're like, I'm sorry, what are we doing here? (laughs) And so, you know, I I think it's both been interesting to see and certainly an eye-opener and also demoralizing. But I think that's what's really exciting about this year is that all 140 legislative seats are on the ballot in November. And so we'll have a chance to win back the majority in the House and hopefully make some progress, even with a Republican governor in the mansion. What are the prospects for winning back the House? It's always tough in an off year. So what's that look like? Yeah. Well, I think I can't talk about the prospects of this November's elections without talking about the redistricting process that we just went through. 2021 redistricting. Everybody went through it. But in Virginia, it's particularly wild because usually we're the first state that gets back census data after the census is completed in order for us to be ready for our odd year elections. So in 2021, we should have ran on new districts, but we did not because of the delay in the census data from the pandemic and all that jazz. And so not only did we have a pandemic that delayed the delivery of census data to us, we also had for the very first time a redistricting commission that was established. And in most cases, you're like, great, a redistricting commission is the gold standard. That's what we want. Except in Virginia, we did not establish an independent redistricting commission. We actually established a bipartisan redistricting commission, where eight of the 16 members were legislators chosen by the leadership of the parties, and eight of the citizen commissioners were also chosen by the leaders of the parties in each of the chambers. And so you're talking about a super partisan group of people who are like, we're going to draw these maps. To no one's surprise, the commission failed to their job. They literally imploded. They couldn't come to reach consensus on anything. And so based on the language in the constitutional amendment that we created, it gets kicked to the Supreme Court of Virginia. SCOVA appoints two special masters to draw these maps. And if we were looking at competitiveness as a successful metric of drawing new maps, then like this was a successful effort by the Supreme Court appointed special masters because the districts are competitive, right? If you're looking at it as a two-party system. So with that information, I would say all of the battleground districts that were that are up for grabs this year are true battleground districts. And I feel really good about the chances of the Democrats taking back the majority in the House of Delegates, partially because I think we're on the morally right side of the issues this year. Right. I mean, with I think that every year, but especially <laughs> this year, right, when you have like this activist Supreme Court who's rolled back decades of women's rights, when you have an activist Supreme Court who's decided admissions into colleges for some of us, but not all of us. Right. And you've seen just the, the, I think, awakening of the American voter and thinking about what it really means to live right now in, a, in an American democracy and to preserve our democracy and the, and the faith in the public institutions that we've spent so many decades and centuries building. How did you find yourself in this position to be thinking about special masters and redistricts and, and all these things and serving in the House of Delegates? What was your path to public office? My path in my career was not always to public office, but it was, I think, always to public policy. When I was in high school, my parents are Buddhists, where my parents are Korean immigrants. And by all accounts, they shouldn't have, but they did send me to a private Christian school for high school. And so I grew up in this private Christian school where every spring break, we would go down to Mexico. Like we would literally load up a school bus full of kids because I grew up in LA. And we would load up the school bus full of kids, go to a rural community and work with the local church. Churches in Mexico, not that dissimilar from churches in America, are often the sort of hub of community. It's where people go to get their only hot meal of the day. It's where they go to take a hot shower because they don't have a shower at home. It's where they go to use a toilet because they don't have running water in their house. And so I do that for 
all of my high school career. And I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Like we're doing things that are immediately gratifying, like tangible outcomes to help people's lives. And it's my senior year. And I'm realizing sort of slowly, it's dawning on me that helping the 30 or 40 families that live around that church, really, really awesome. But then what about like the 30 or 40 million other people in the world who don't have access to hot water? And at the same time, my dad is going through a health thing where he has spent several months being really sick. Um, I should also provide background that my dad's a small business owner. And so health insurance was always sort of like out of reach for us as like a financial means. And so I grew up thinking that healthcare was like any other service. You go to the hair salon, you get your haircut and you pay for your haircut. You go to the doctor's office, you get your vaccines, you get your annual exam, you get your blood work, and then you pay for it on checkout. Like that's, I just like literally thought that's how it was operated. Turns out that's not the case. So my dad spent six or seven months being super sick and going from doctor to doctor and paying out of pocket for prescriptions, for diagnosis, for blood work. That's all of it, which comes back, you know, inconclusive. And so he's missing work. He's like literally passing out at home. He is, we are, you know, several thousands poorer because of all the money he spent. And finally, out of desperation, he flies to Korea, where he's from, and he lands in Seoul one morning, is at Seoul University Hospital the next day, and then in surgery for bladder cancer immediately thereafter. And he spends the remaining three months of the summer in Korea getting radiation treatment. And then for the following 10 years afterwards, he's doing first biennial trips for the first five years to do his biennial checkups. And then for the final five years, he's going back once a year to do his annual exams. And, and, you know, you sort of as a 16, 17 year old, I was like, I'm sorry, like we live in what's supposed to be like the wealthiest country in the world. And like, how is this the system in which like it's more affordable and more accessible and easier for my dad to fly across the globe to get healthcare than it is for him to figure it out at home? That is crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. To see one system that works and one system that's completely failing. Absolutely. And so all of this is like swirling in my head as this like impressionable young person. And I'm like, great. Like, how do we fix this? <laughs> and the answer that I come to is like public policy, right? If you write good legislation, you're going to get good policies. And government is, you know, I still believe this, that government is the only entity that is large enough, well-resourced enough, and has the ability to scale impact in large ways. And so I decided I'm going to go into public policy. And that's sort of how I ended up here. <laughs> and tell me about your election, because it was a competitive election. And tell me about the decision to run. You'd worked with elected officials, but to put your name on the ballot and 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 campaign. I worked for a number of election officials or elected officials before I became an elected myself. And I'll tell you that I have so much more empathy for elected officials now <laughs> that I am one myself. <laughs> uh, I feel like l- locking my candidates in small, tiny rooms and being like, make your calls is, you know, I'm so much more empathetic now. <laughs> um, but I, I, I did run in a competitive primary because I challenged an incumbent. So it was 2021 and we're coming out of the pandemic. And in Virginia, it was the first time that we had had a trifecta where we had the governor's mansion and we had both chambers in the legislature. And I thought that my delegate was not doing a good enough job. He was, as often we do, um, getting in the way of progress for the sake of progress. And I say we often do that because I feel like sometimes Democrats will do things and I'll be like, this is why we can't have nice things, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so it was kind of like that approach where he was getting in the way of progress for the sake of progress. And some of the examples that I cite to, I cite are, one, he single-handedly killed the qualified immunity vote in the wake of the George Floyd murder in the House because he said it didn't go far enough, right? And so you're like, okay, yeah, (laughs) okay. And then 
in Virginia, we have the Virginia Military Institute, which is a public institution for like military training. It's it's a very prestigious institution. And there were a ton of reports coming out of VMI about the culture at VMI being racist, misogynistic, Black cadets who were facing threats of lynchings, right? And the backdrop of everything that we do in Virginia, we have to remember Virginia was also like the capital of the Confederacy, right? So in spite of all of the, you know, the progress that we've made, like the backdrop still exists. You can drive to different parts of Virginia today and you'll see Confederate flags on people's yards, right? It's like, that's a reality of Virginia here. And so there are all these reports coming out and the governor at the time, Governor Northam said, we really should investigate what's happening and figure out how to get like a, get VMI back on track to being a place that is inclusive and safe for all of our cadets, regardless of their race or gender. And so he asks for a million dollar budget item from the legislature to say, we're going to fund a study and then bring on some consultants to help us fix this culture. And the there were two Democrats who voted against it. And my opponent was one of them. And his logic, his very sound logic was, we already know they're racist. Why do we need to spend money to know they're racist? <laughs> and I was like, you're not wrong. But <laughs> like, that's not how we do this, right? So uh, we really, and so anyways, I, I think that he was the kind of person who was getting in the way of progress for the sake of progress. And he also had such an abrasive personality type that he wasn't able to get along with colleagues in the House and nor in the Senate. So I was really lucky that when I decided to throw my hat into the ring, I had the support of our state senators. And I think that spoke a lot to the constituents and to the voters who said, like, if my senators are saying they don't want this guy in office because they can't work with him, there must be something here to that. And so that was how I decided to, like, I was like, we don't have time to waste, right? Like, there is no time to waste right now. So. Wow. And so now you've been through a session. And one of the things that I found interesting is you've been vocal about how part-time legislatures are a real challenge to have a diverse representation and you, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're balancing a full-time job trying to increase civic engagement in the Commonwealth. And so can you talk a little bit about what it's like to serve in, a, in the legislature and sure. the challenges of having a part-time legislature? Yeah, absolutely. Brian, you were the supervisor in Santa Cruz. Yes. Was that a part-time job or a full-time gig? So the supervisor was a full-time job, but previously I was a city council member and a mayor, and mayor was a very full-time job, but very part-time pay. And so you're mm. balancing many different hats, and it's and so I, I feel your pain. Yeah. <laughs> yes, totally. Well, before I, I decided to run for office myself, again, like I have a lot more empathy now for the folks that I encourage to run for office. I focused a lot on figuring out how do we remove and break down barriers of access for more candidates who look like their communities to run for office for the obvious reasons, right? There is less women. There are less BIPOC folks in office. And I thought that it was because being a candidate was hard. I thought it was because we don't have access to the natural networks that a person who comes from an independently wealthy family does, or someone who has already established themselves in their career. So all of their friends are also high-level attorneys who are well-paid, right? Whereas me in 2021, when I was like raising money, I was calling all my friends and being like, can you give me 50 bucks? And can your mom give me 50 bucks, right? That's literally how I raised my money. <laughs> and like, I don't have a network of deep-pocketed friends. And so figuring out how to do it, I thought it was like a, a network wealth ability to raise money and who do you know barrier to access when you when you're running for office and thinking about being a candidate and so that's why the natural tendency is for white wealthy men because they don't have other obligations outside 
of their job. Turns out that I was really wrong about that (laughs) and that it was short-sighted to just think about what does it take to help more people run for office? Because the second part of that that I think about now is what does it take to help more people run for office and succeed when they're in office? So as you said, in Virginia, we have a part-time legislature. We meet from January to about end of February, early March, depending on the year. In even years, we're meeting for 60 days. In odd years, we're meeting for 45 days. And our salary is a whopping $17,500. And so you have to think about like who can take two months or three months sometimes out of their life to dedicate to being in Richmond and going through a session for $17,000. Certainly not working people, certainly not young people, and usually not people of color. And so I think about how the systems that we've created and have been built We're not built with people who are working class or women in mind. And so it's really hard to think about how do we operate in an existing framework and then try and reform it so that it makes it more inclusive for the generations that are yet to come. And I feel lucky that I get to do that job both in my legislative role, but also in my day job. As you mentioned, I work for a nonprofit organization called the Virginia Civic Engagement Table. And we believe that building power for communities and their ability to advocate for policies that represent their priorities and their values is part of building a robust and healthy democracy that is inclusive of all of us. And so in the in my day job, I get to think about like, what kind of world are we trying to build and usher in when we allow people to have power? And then in my day job, I get to do some, you know, like my side job. I, it's really a side hustle if we're getting it correctly. It's, I get to figure out how do we nibble around the edges and think about quality of life immediately for folks. And how has it been when you sort of raise these issues with your with your colleagues or people around Richmond? Is it on their radar? Are they sympathetic? Is there potential change? Like what's the what's the state of the conversation, let's say? I have been surprised at how much resistance I've gotten when I ask and like raise the issue of like we should think about becoming a full-time legislature, right? And allowing more folks to serve their communities by being in elected office. And it's not always where you think the opposition would come from. It feels like it's obvious to me, like the other side of the aisle would be opposed to a full-time legislature, but it's from within my own party too. Virginia is a particularly unique place because we have really, really lax ethics laws. For example, Virginia is a place in which I can receive any amount of money from any individual or any company, corporation, or PAC as I would like. So a person could cut me a $100,000 check through their company in like literal corporate dollars in my bank account and it would it would be fine. Wow. Yep. There are no subpoena authorities. Like if a candidate files inaccurate finance reports, there's like no one to tattle on them to. <laughs> and like there's no one to say like or provide any oversight or auditability. So ethics laws are really lax in Virginia. And so that means that there are lots of folks who run their own legal offices, generate clients as lawyers who they also then carry bills for in the next session, right? And it's a weird place where I think it behooves the establishment to continue to allow the status quo to persevere and to persist. So it may not even be like a philosophical argument about part-time versus full-time and citizen legislatures, but it may have to do with economic incentives of the current system. Exactly. You know, the citizen legislature idea from like Thomas Jefferson, I think it's really lovely in theory, right? Like as a citizen legislator, you go to Richmond, you make laws and you go home and live under them. 
right? And like, I love the beauty of that and like the integrity and like what it requires to be a legislator and to live under the laws that you make. But the reality is, is when the House of Burgess was established in 1619, it's a very different makeup of the Commonwealth, of the kind of complexity and policies we're actually creating right now. I mean, we're talking about infrastructure to regulate AI, right? And to expand broadband to every corner of the Commonwealth. We're in 1619, <laughs> that was not at all what they were thinking about. And so I, I just think about how we continue, especially as the in Virginia and the House of Delegates, we continue to hold to like this idea of what we used to be in the Virginia way. But I, I don't think we're asking the question, like, who does it serve? Yeah. And what good and what outcomes do you get from a policy perspective? Even if you take out all the self-interest that you've articulated, but like you're just slow on AI for a year or two years, right? Like that has huge economic implications, mm -hmm. privacy, all kinds of other implications that you haven't, you're just not acting because you're just not there to to act. Yeah. Um, in so. 2020, if you like watched any of our virtual sessions, you'd see all these legislators being like, am I muted? <laughs> you'd be like, <laughs> what are we doing here? And it was just like a comedic reflection of like, you know, the, the median age and that body and like what technology means to them. And so I serve on the Communications Technology and Innovation Committee, and we don't get very many bills before us. And I think that that's telling about what we're focusing on and what we're not focusing on. This year, we passed a bill about like data privacy and like age and how old you have to be to access sort of like explicit content on the interwebs. And the day that Pornhub blocked Virginia users, I got so many texts of people being like, what did you do? And it was like, you were telling me way more about your personal life than I really want to know right now. <laughs> Please don't text me. <laughs> but it's it's this idea of like, we don't have the infrastructure and we don't have the opportunity for corporate or commercial entities to like abide by the regulations we're putting into place, right? And so then you have actors like Pornhub who are like, we're just not going to operate because like there's no opportunity for us to even comply. So like, how do we regulate an industry that we're not even thinking about or willing to grapple with? That anecdote raises the, the, the issue that you are bringing a significant amount of diversity from several perspectives to the House of Delegates in that, like, I don't know that all other delegates have people who text, much less access the internet and understand the intersection of state laws and privacy and everything else. So what's it like being a diverse voice in a one of the nation's oldest institutions. It's really funny, actually, <laughs> to be a diverse <laughs> voice in this space, because on my very first day in office, so it's like January 2022, and it's the first time that we're back in person since the pandemic. And it's my first day in office. Like, it's literally the day I'm going to be sworn in. So I'm like, I've got my backpack on, I'm in the elevator of my building, and I'm like so excited, like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. And there are a number of lobbyists in the elevator with me who are like chatting and making small talk. And they're like, wow, it's so great to be back in person, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, great. And I get off on my floor and I'm like, see you guys, have a nice day. And they go, wait, so who do you work for? And I was like, oh, <laughs> right. And I didn't have a good answer. And I was like, I work for the people of the 86th district. And like the elevator door closes with like them being like, what does that mean? <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, that's such an interesting question because I think it gets to sort of like 
the undercurrent of like, what kind of faces are they so used to seeing in this place that a person who looks like me, who, you know, I'm, I'm five feet tall, I'm AAPI, I'm a woman, I, you know, all these things. Um, they're like, oh, like that person surely isn't the elected official themselves. And so I kept track of the number of times that I was asked, who do you work for? Or some iteration thereof throughout my first session. And I was asked 17 times by wow. the end of it. One of the most that was, you know, obviously day one, like really memorable to me. But the second most memorable incident was when I went up for my very first subcommittee bill hearing. So it's my very first bill hearing and I'm going to subcommittee. I'm like, this is really exciting. You mentioned, you know, my passion for like animal rights. And at the time there was a facility in Virginia that was violating all sorts of laws and breeding beagles for scientific experimentation. During the pandemic, none of the labs were open. No one was doing any experimentation, but the facility still kept breeding beagles. And by the end of it in 2021, they had something like 4,000 beagles in custody and they had four yeah. staff members and one vet, right? And like, so you're going into these places and the kennels are just like full of dead beagle puppies. And you're like, what are we doing here, folks? Right. And so it's my very first bill. And I'm like, great, we're going to save the beagles. And I've got these pictures in hand of beagles in crates and like their inhumane treatment. And I go up to the House committee clerk and I say, hi, this is about bill number XYZ. And she says, I said, can you do you mind handing this? These pictures over to the members when they come in for their meeting. Because I can't hand stuff to them. It has to all go through the clerk because there's procedure. And, I was, and she looks at me and she puts her hand on my arm and she goes, oh, sweetie, when your member gets here, have them give me this stuff and I can pass it out to the members then. And I was like, oh, but I am the member, <laughs> right? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, And so she was like, oh, I'm so sorry, right? So she's obviously mortified. But also for me, I'm like, it again, like just reminds me that they're so used to not seeing people who look like me, but it feels like sometimes even just existing in these spaces and just holding office and, you know, being visible in and of itself is like an act of resistance, right? It's like um, we get to push the envelope just by being here. And while we, you know, when like Crazy Rich Asians came out, when Black Panther came out, we talked about how cool is it to see our stories and these narratives that are not about white dominant narratives but about other people who can take up these spaces and hold these roles and be the superheroes. How cool is it to see that representation on the silver screen? And I think about what that means for folks on the other side of it. It's representation isn't just about our stories being told, but it's about us like being seen in these roles. And so that, that's sort of what it's with what it's been like in doing that. But I, again, I come back to the idea that I think just by being there and holding office, hopefully I'm doing a little bit of work in and like contributing to the changing narrative of who people who hold power are. How do you balance? So you you campaigned, right? Especially in that primary as being somebody I can hold people together. I can build good relationships within this institution to get results for my constituents with also, frankly, like calling bullshit when you're being singled out in a way that other people are not. So it's sort of, there's a, there's a challenging dynamic there. How do you, how do you finesse that? Or maybe you don't finesse it. Maybe you just do what you do. Yeah, yeah. The right answer is like, I don't know yet. Um, <laughs> one of the first, like the most existential crises I had down in Richmond was, it was like week four, maybe of my first session. And I mentioned the Virginia way, right? And it's this like old culture in the institution of like being able to be statesmanly and like civil and genteel. And and the, the slogan that we use is you can 
disagree without being disagreeable. And that's like sort of the Virginia way, right? And you're like, okay. And again, like theoretically, it's great, right? An, an idea, it's lovely, right? And, and like a throwback to like what legislators are there for, right? We're not there for partisanship and we're not there for party politics. We're there to serve the people of our communities. But I get down there and I'm coming face to face with members and my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, folks who spent their entire campaigns saying that Trump actually won the 2020 elections and that Biden is not a legitimate president. And I'm like, I don't know how to deal with you. <laughs> like, how do I, like, what am I supposed to say to you? Like, am I supposed to pass you in the hallway and say like, hi, how was your weekend? How are your kids? Right. When you like fundamentally, like we disagree on such a fundamental level that we can't even agree on a set of truths. Right. That was like really hard for me, especially when we had a bill about teaching, I think they called it like divisive content in schools. Right. So there are people on the other side of the aisle. They introduce this piece of legislation and members on my side of the aisle. We get up and we make amendments to this bill. And we're like, well, what would you consider divisive? Is like talking about enslavement in, in, in divisive. And the answer is like, yeah, it is. I'm like, OK, well, what about internment camps and the impact of internment and the theft of property and wealth for generations from Japanese Americans? Like, what about the internment camps? Is that divisive? And they say, yeah, it is. And we're like, well, what about the Holocaust? <laughs> Surely. Right. Like. That's not divisive. And they say, yeah, it is. Right. So civil rights, internment camps, Holocaust, enslaved people, the history of America, right? How it's built on like the original sin. All of it is divisive. Yeah. All history. And the, all history. <laughs> yep. And the guy gets up, the patron gets up and he goes, you know, I'm not saying that this isn't important to learn. I'm just saying that if we're going to teach about this stuff, we really need to be teaching both sides of history. And I'm sitting there and like my mind is blown, right? I'm like, what is the other side of the Holocaust that you're like, you think is so important to teach? And so like, you know, like coming face to face with the Twitter troll is really hard. <laughs> like, what is this? And so I really like, that was like the, like a real existential crisis moment for me where I was like, how am I supposed to like preserve the Virginia way and pretend to be cordial and civil with my colleagues who, again, we, we don't share a set of values or operate from the same set of facts. I don't know what to do with that. That, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I wish I knew that. That is a um, that is an incredible dilemma that I'm hearing too many elected officials mm. across the country have to try to figure out. Like, how do you how do you work in a democracy with people who are fundamentally not supporting democracy, right? As mm -hmm. a as a principle and a concept. I'm going to take a quick break here to just let our listeners know that if you want to find another podcast you might enjoy, I encourage you to check out EdChat. It's a dynamic podcast by the Education Reform Now Advocacy Organization. Join educators, policy experts, and advocates as they examine the intersection of education and politics. Conversations cover how to lead for students in an impactful ways, given record drops in test scores, how to navigate politically treacherous environments, how to ensure equity in education, gain insights in the policies that impact our students while discovering effective strategies to drive meaningful change. EdChats, the podcast for educational policy trends impacting today's political landscape, is available anywhere podcasts are found. I now want to get back to been talking about a little bit about the divide, maybe between Republicans and Democrats, and but a little bit of a divide within our party 
where a dichotomy has been created that that we either either pro growth and pro economy or you're pro labor, and you've been trying to say those two can grow hand in hand. Can you talk about some of those efforts to drive an economy that rewarding folks as as well as the economy as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. I fundamentally reject the notion that it has to be either or, right? And I, I, I think that that's wrong. Like we should, all, we should like reject the premise of that. I think that when you're talking about investing in working families and working people, you inevitably get a growing and robust economy in turn. There are a number of initiatives that we've taken in Virginia that have resulted in better policies and outcomes for working families and workers while also securing our place as the number one state for business in 2021 and 2022. It's actually been under the Republican leadership that we've seen Virginia fall to like number two and number three as the best state in the country to do business. So I think we have to be thinking about both of those things as possible outcomes. And I think that they do go hand in hand. When we think about labor, some of the things that I think fundamentally also need to be addressed in like working rights, which include safe workplaces, livable wages, preserving their ability to unionize and organize if they should so choose. I think we fundamentally believe in that. And that doesn't always have to mean like it's bad for our economy or for growth, right? I imagine, especially as a supervisor, right, in both and and in your capacity as a mayor, but especially as a supervisor, I imagine you had to, you saw a lot of that too. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the key components, right, is that if you want people to buy into pro-growth strategies, they have to see it at their dinner table. Like, you know what I mean? Like they have to see the benefits almost immediately. Otherwise, it's seen as something you're doing for somebody else that maybe maybe having no impact, but you gotta see that impact at the dinner table on the local community level. Absolutely. So it's about investing in affordable housing, right? In Fairfax County alone, which is where my district is, we're talking about a 45,000 unit shortage for affordable and workforce housing, right? Wow. And so we are, our, our supervisors are doing an awesome job at trying to close that gap as quickly as they can. But the reality is that it's not quick enough, right? We are already falling short. And in the next 10 years, we will be even further. In 2020 and 2021, we went from being the 50th worst state in the country to work in to becoming like smack dab middle of the pack in 25th, right? And part of that came from raising our minimum wage. We used to follow the federal minimum wage at 725. And in Fairfax County, like the livable hourly wage, I think is $26, right? So $7.25 is not cutting it. But also like you saw after the pandemic, Ain't nobody gonna go out and work for seven twenty five anyways, right? Like we're talking about McDonald's hiring like high school kids for eighteen bucks an hour. So there's that. We raise the minimum wage, and so in twenty twenty six, we'll reenact it, and it'll be fifteen dollars in twenty twenty six, which I think is actually too late, quite frankly. But we passed a minimum wage law. We also gave collective bargaining rights to public employees, state sector, and in localities. Virginia is a Dillon rule state, so. Anything that a locality wants to do still has to go through Richmond, which is a topic for another day, potentially. But we also made sure that PLAs were in place, right? So there are project labor agreements. So if you have a public body who's spending more than $30 million on a public project, they have to look for contractors and subcontractors who have fair and safe conditions for their workers. Anyways, all that to say is that's what helped us go from 50th to 25th. And there's still a lot more to do. 
I think one of the ways in which we think, in which we think about, I'm actually going to be meeting with a local company called Accelivate next week. They are an advanced air mobility company, and they opened their first campus site here, um, their first facility in Leesburg in Loudoun County, just next door. But they said that when they looked at expanding their facility, they chose North Carolina as their second site of expansion rather than Virginia. And so next week, I'm, you know, I'm really excited to get to dig deep and ask, like, what prompted that? What are you looking for? What kind of conditions can we create that are hospitable for growth, right? For folks to be able to invest in their workforce here in Virginia, where we have a great public education system. But yeah, those I, I think those are all, I just reject the premise that it has to be either or. We're either pro-work or pro-growth. I like all the premises you're rejecting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, your, and your service and truthfulness during this podcast about about the opportunities and the challenges. I want to thank you. We love having you in the New Deal, and we hope to see you soon at our conferences and hear more about your efforts to bring a different perspective and new energy to to the state's politics. I think it's, it's incredibly exciting. Thanks so much, Ryan. It was really great to chat with you today. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.